0: Stories They Told Me The Missionaries of Charity, The Bronx Shelter and Soup Kitchen, Queen of Peace, Winter 1981 by Lars Sederholm In the winter of 1981-82, I worked off and on as a volunteer in the soup kitchen and spent periodic overnights in the shelter under the care of the Missionaries of Charity. My friend, the filmmaker Anne Petrie, who later made a documentary about Mother Teresa, introduced me to the sisters, and once to the Mother Teresa herself. Some thirty years later I found my notebook from these times. Each one of the five stories is essentially true and recollected from sketchy notes and later embellished on the loom of my imagination. Now let's listen to the story about Joseph, who rings the door to the shelter one bitter cold February evening. He was dressed in a thread-worn, oversized, black coat. His bobby hair was standing straight up, his eyes wide open, radiating fear and confusion. His face was covered with patches of hair, his skin had a strange, grey tone. Vous parlez français, he asked. Bien sûr. Please come in and get warm. This is a nasty day for us humans to be outside. You know, it's minus fifteen degrees Celsius and a sharp wind to sting you. Let me get you a blanket and make you a cup of hot tea. Would you like something to eat? Sorry to have to tell you this, but you don't look so good at the moment." Tears came to his eyes. He told me that the moment was so overwhelming that he could do nothing but to cry. Not in sadness, but in gratitude. Monsieur, he sobbed, I feel that I just came back from the dead. This morning I was convinced that this would be the last day of my life. To have the good fortune to find this place has saved me, and you speak French, a sign from higher up. Let me show you your bed and a shower. When you are ready, I will have a cup of tea and a sandwich for you. Tomorrow in the morning, a few of us will get together to talk over a cup of coffee, and perhaps you can join us then. Just for you to know, this house is in the care of the missionaries of charity. The spiritual leader of this organization is Mother Teresa, who you may have heard of. You will have a bed and food, and we will do our best to get you some clothing that will protect you from the winter. No drugs or alcohol. These are the rules here. I'm here one night a week to help out wherever possible. Nobody comes here without a story, and perhaps some of us would like to share what brings us to the shelter. I will help you with the language as much as possible. I already know that a few other people will join us. We'll find out tomorrow. Have a good night's rest, Joseph. The following day, 8 a.m. The room is simple and radiates the purpose of the mission. The floor is covered with linoleum, a large table and some plastic chairs, a flowering plant in the window, on the walls, a picture of the Virgin Mary and Jesus on the cross. In the corner, on a pedestal, stands a carved statue of a saint with folded hands. Sitting silently around the table are Joseph, Carlos, Kevin, Sergei, David, and Los Joseph. His kind eyes are moving slowly from person to person. A few pieces of blood-stained paper stick to his clean-shaven cheeks. He's covered himself with a blue blanket, accentuating his air of dignity. He speaks French, moving his hands to illustrate every sentence. Lars is translating. I came from Kinshasa in Zaire to this country a week ago. I'm here because my life was in danger if I'd stayed in Zaire. By profession, I'm an avionics technician. I was part of the technical staff responsible to prepare President Mobutu's aircraft to take him and his entourage of women and his many children on an excursion. When my job was done, I left the airport and went home to my parents' house. I was satisfied that everything with the aircraft was in good order. As I was getting ready to go to bed, I received a phone call from my cousin, who had a job at the airport. He told me that one of the engines had exploded just as the aircraft was ready to take off and a disaster was averted in the last second. My cousin, who was a witness to the accident, said, that Mobutu's family was safely evacuated from the plane. The president was in shock and convinced that he and his family was the target of sabotage and an attempt on his life. Someone was scheming to kill him and he gave orders to go and find those of us who had prepared the plane for the flight. My cousin told me to go into hiding right away since members of the Mobutu secret police was on the way to my home. He gave me the address to a safe place where I could hide and urged me to leave my home without delay. Everybody in Zaya knows what would happen to me if these people found me. I would be taken to an underground cell at Camp Congolo and tortured to death. My cousin didn't have to tell me. It took me a few minutes to tell my parents about the situation, and we gathered a few things together in a backpack. We had $50 at home which my parents gave to me, and I jumped into my car and left my hideaway. I was careful to park the car away from the hiding place, and then I walked there under the cover of the night. I stayed low for a week without any visits, careful not to reveal where I was hiding. I received a message that my friends were preparing to get a plane ticket, a passport under a new name, and a student visa to America. For some reason, my cousin, who made all these arrangements, had contacts in the American embassy, and he managed to convince someone there that I had nothing to do with the accident and that my life was in danger. To prepare for my escape, I dressed in a way that would make it hard to recognize me. A beard, glasses, and a beret made me look different from myself. When I checked in at the airport, two of Mobutu's goons— were standing at the counter looking carefully at every passenger, sometimes even checking their papers. One of them stopped me and asked me for the purpose of my trip. I told him that I was a student and I was going to the US for my continued studies and that I was coming back home soon to serve my country. He didn't ask for my passport and he didn't notice that I had no luggage other than my backpack. He even wished me a safe trip and gave me a pat on the back. During this brief moment, my heart was beating so hard that I was afraid that he could see it beat outside of my body. All I could imagine at that moment was me hanging upside down in some blood-drenched room, beaten to a pulp. It took hours of waiting to board the plane, and I made every effort to keep a low profile and stay in the background to avoid detection. Obviously, I got on the aircraft, and you can imagine the feeling when the plane finally took off and broke through the clouds. I had my life. When I arrived at Kennedy Airport via a stop in Brussels, I was interrogated for half a day by the immigration police and I was treated like an enemy. They didn't want to believe my story. It just sounded made up and unreal, they said. It was a scary experience. These officers continued to speak to me in an aggressive tone, telling me that they would send me back to where I had come from. They seemed angry that I couldn't speak English very well. They were obviously irritated that they had to wait for a French-speaking interpreter who arrived after a few hours. The hostility of these immigration officers really surprised me. Maybe they just had something against me as a black person. How else can I explain this hostile treatment? I was finally allowed to leave without any further explanation. Once outside the terminal, I was met with bitter cold and snow. This was the first time in my life that I experienced snow and temperatures below zero, and I didn't like one bit of it. In fact, I was shocked and I felt that I could hardly breathe. I had no idea where to go other than to Manhattan, which was New York to me. My plan was to look for a cheap hotel and start thinking about what to do. I jumped into a taxi, which took me on a slippery drive to Manhattan. As we approached, I briefly saw the skyline in the snowstorm, the first thing in America that I recognized. The man in the taxi asked me where I wanted to go. Since I had no answer, he drove me to a big park full of snow. He took my $50 and left me in a hurry without a word. There I was, standing on the street, alone, penniless and terrified in a park covered with snow and trees with no leaves. I could just as well have landed on the moon and it would not have been a stranger experience. I started to look for someone who could speak French, which turned out to be impossible. I walked around to ask for help, but people pretended not to see me and walked away. I tried again and again to find someone to help me, but people avoided me. I was so frozen I thought I would die. All I had was these pants and a pair of sneakers, a shirt and a thin jacket. I noticed how people protected themselves from the cold with hats, thick coats and big shoes. I was lucky to pick up a coat that someone had left near a garbage can. The hunger was terrible, worse than a snake bite. A restaurant gave me some leftovers after I made signs from my hand to my mouth. The kind man who gave me the food really saved me for a few days. Later I had to find food in the garbage. I ate horrible things just to survive. I found a metal grid above some train running under the earth where it was a little warmer. I made a bed from paper boxes and fell into the strangest dreams. I was so cold that I was afraid that I would never wake up again and that someone would find me dead. The next morning, after walking around for hours, I found a building with a hotel sign. I walked into the lobby and asked the man for a room. He did not even want to see my passport or anything. He just asked me to leave and I understood that he was going to call the police. I found a mirror and I could hardly recognize myself. I looked terrible. Back in the park, I knelt in front of a bench and prayed to the Lord to save my life. I have never prayed like that before. That evening, I went back to the metal grid above the train and woke up when an old man tried to pull the coat from my body while screaming at me. After a short struggle, he ran away, and I still had the coat. Days passed like this, and I kept trying to find someone to speak to. Finally, I got in touch with a man who who stopped and asked me where I was from. I knew a little French, I told him my story, and he gave me $20 and he wrote the address to this place on this piece of paper. He brought me to the train that goes under the earth and he wrote me the name of the train stop where I had to get off. He also made this little map to help me to find this house. I have no possessions other than the backpack and the clothes I'm wearing. What you don't see, I keep up here in my head. My profession is technical and anything with electricity would be where I can help. I'm ready to do anything you can think of, including cleaning latrines. This is a fight for my life and there's no way for me to go back. Carlos. His elbows were resting on the table, his eyes darting back and forth to land on his twisting hands again and again. His hair slicked down, oily and carefully combed. He slowly rocked back and forth, looking up as if he was looking for words above himself. He tries to speak, but has to start again and again searching for words. He finally takes a hold of himself and begins to tell his story. For the first time I will speak openly about the real reasons why I find myself here. Now I must force myself to remember the nightmare that I have been trying so hard to leave behind me. First, I am sorry to say that I am an alcoholic. The bottle has won a big victory over me. I have convinced myself that I can only forget my pain if I am drunk and I drink until I pass out. I have now been in this house for a week and the miracle is, that I haven't had a drink during these days. That is why I have come to see that I must try to understand my misery and not try to drink myself away from it. Now I'm afraid that I have to leave this place. I know I must leave and go look for a new life, and I really don't know where and what to look for. When I was 24 years old, I was married to Carmen, a beautiful girl who was 18 years old at the time. We lived in a small town in Ecuador. My grandfather was an electrician and I became a plumber. Carmen trade to become a teacher to small children. We were so much in love. We could not get enough of each other and we suffered when we were away from each other even if it was only for a day. For years we were trying to make a baby and then one happy day the miracle happened and Carmen was pregnant. After five years of the most wonderful life with Carmen, our prayers were heard and we had a small daughter. Her name was Maria, in honor of the Virgin, who heard our prayers. Imagine our happiness. A few months after the birth, both Carmen and Maria were infected with some kind of unknown bacteria. The doctors couldn't stop the spreading of the bacteria, no matter how hard they tried, and both Carmen and the baby died an agonizing death as I was helplessly watching. The pain at that moment when they died was so terrible that I tried to throw myself out of a window. The doctors pulled me back and gave me some kind of injection that made me go to sleep. After this disaster, I felt like an animal that had been living free and suddenly found itself in a small, cold room with no escape. The empty space left inside of me was filled with pain that was both physical and mental. I could only breathe with great effort and felt that I was choking. It was impossible for me to stay in our home. Everything there just tortured me with the memories of Carmen and the baby. I moved in with my mother and one of my sisters, but that ended badly. Both of them became disgusted with me. I was in a constant drunken stupor and we were fighting about everything. They finally chased me out of their home and told me never to come back. They even threw stones after me so that I wouldn't forget the message. I went back to our home and spent days passing out from drinking. Now I will try to tell you about something that I remember vaguely. I got hold of a shovel and somehow managed to walk all the way to the cemetery where Carmen and Maria had been buried several months earlier. I do remember digging because the evening was warm and to dig all the way down to the coffin was hard work. I managed to pray open the lid and then I don't remember anything until the next morning. When I opened my eyes, I was on my back looking up through a hole. Standing on top of the hole were people pushing and shoving each other to get a good look at me. Many of them had cameras and the camera flashes almost blinded me. People were talking in shrill voices, screaming over each other and a few men were leaning down into the hole and grabbed my pants and jacket and tried to pull me out. I remember resisting them and some more people were leaning into the hole, pulling at me. When I came up from the hole, I had one of her arms with me. I was thrown at the side and people were calling me bad things and some were even spitting on me. Others were throwing things at me. A sharp stone hit me in my head. And I was bleeding badly. The police came and saved me from the crowd. At that moment, I really wanted to die. I was thrown in jail where I was waiting for weeks without knowing what was happening. The guards told me that I was not allowed to see any of the other inmates for safety reasons. They were afraid that somebody would try to harm me. At least that's what they said. Later I learned that photographs of me next to Carmen's dead body had been on the front page of many magazines and papers in Ecuador, and in some other countries as well. The picture of Carmen were gruesome. Some of the flesh on her face had fallen off the bone, her long hair was attached to the skull on rotten meat, her teeth were grinning. Later I learned that some people were making comments that she was laughing at the fool who went to sleep next to her in the grave. Horrible things like that. After some time, the disgust was replaced by people feeling sorry for me. A journalist with a great deal of influence in my country had been talking about me on a popular television program and explained that I deserved pity and not contempt. He had interviewed people who had known Carmen and me and had come to realize the extent of the tragedy. He managed to turn the opinion in my favor. The judge took pity on me and I was released from jail. The story spread and people who recognized me from the newspapers kept reminding me of what I had done. Many wanted to have their pictures taken next to me. After a few weeks, I was desperate to leave the community that was no longer mine. In fact, I was no longer part of anything there. I sold my few belongings, and with the little money that was left, I managed to get a tourist visa and booked a ticket to New York City to look for my father. My father left my mother and the family when I was just a small boy. The rumor was that he was living here in New York. For me, it was hard not to have a father, and I was always longing for him. It was kind of a secret that I wanted him to be my father. My family wanted me to be angry with him, but now I was thinking that if I could only find him, he would be happy to be my father. I had an old picture of him, not a good one, but that was my only hope to find him. I knew his name, but perhaps he had become a gringo and changed the name. The rumor was that he was a janitor in some elegant building in Manhattan. Once in New York, I figured out that if I lived on rice and beans every day, I could have enough money to stay for one month in a cheap boarding house in Lower Manhattan. I was never sober, not even for a minute. The cheapest liquor I could find was called Thunderbird, some kind of sweet alcohol that did the job. After the first week the hotel had enough of me and asked me to leave, I lived on the streets begging for money. Some people told me that many of the alcoholic beggars were hanging out at the corner of Houston Street and the Bowery. I became a member of a community of homeless alcoholics. All day was spent drinking and begging. The younger men helped the older beggars to get up so they could get to the cars in time for the red light. It was hard to leave my friends in the corner, but one day I took charge of myself. I went to the Bowery Mission, where I had a shower, cut my hair, and put on some decent clothes that the mission gave me. It took me a few days to clean up. I took the subway to 57th Street and started to walk from door to door on all the avenues, showing each doorman the picture of my father, and gave them his name. Many of them were unfriendly to me. Finally a man from Colombia thought he recognized him from the photo and gave me the address where he thought I could find him. For days I observed a building where my father was working. I could recognize him from the picture. It was him. There was no question about it. During these days I tried to drink less and I was sober enough to walk straight. The building where he worked was on Fifth Avenue facing Central Park, which gave me a chance to observe him from a place behind a bush. Sometimes I walked right by the building to get a better look of him. He was dressed in a grey uniform with gold ribbons. On his head he was wearing a hat that had some kind of gold ornament in the front. He was opening doors, carrying groceries and parcels, saluting people, calling taxis, and he smiled a lot. Each time he did something for people they gave him money which he counted as soon as he was alone. He seemed to have a good relation with other doormen in the surrounding buildings. The men would get together on the sidewalk to smoke and talk. My father looked like a nice and cheerful person, and I was looking forward to become his son and friend. The mid-afternoon seemed to be the least busy time for him, and I took hold of myself and walked up to him one sunny day. When I greeted him in Spanish, his face became hard, and he asked me to leave the premises. No panhandling in front of this building, he said. I wasn't prepared for this beginning, and I began to stammer that I was Carlos, his only son, who had come all the way from Ecuador to meet him. He was looking at me with the same hard face and said that I was drunk and confused. I have no son in Ecuador, and I will have to ask you to leave right now. His voice was cold, and he almost shouted at me. His behavior was hard to understand, and I thought that I must provide some more facts for him to believe me. I insisted that my mother, Eulalia Guzman, was his wife at the time he left Ecuador 20 years ago. She had three children with you before you left. I'm the oldest, and your other two children are females. He kept interrupting my story, but I just had to go on. I told him that I had sold all my belongings to come to New York to meet him. I started to sob and revealed to him how I had been missing him every day of my life as long as I could remember. I wanted to tell him about my hard life and how it was my hope that he would open his heart to me. I asked him for a helping hand until I was able to get back on my feet. Now his face became even harder and he said that he had no idea who I was. He never had a son and this was just a big mistake. He simply told me to leave right away and never come back. If you do, he said, I'll call the police and you'll be in more trouble than you can imagine. He turned his back to me and walked inside the lobby. I was stunned and stayed outside the building, hoping that he would come back and talk to me. Instead, two of his Latino friends from the next door building appeared and asked me to leave the sidewalk unless I wanted to get into a lot of trouble, including to be sent back to Ecuador. They informed me that this man is not your father and that I should be ashamed to come to his door and make such ridiculous claims. I was crushed and felt like my last hope had just vanished. I had no other idea than to go back to my friends at the Bowery, and I kept drinking and begging for money at the stoplight. I'm not sure how long I lived like this. Everything around me became the same, and time vanished. Maybe I was in the corner for several months. I'm not sure. A few times I went to take a shower at the mission. Someone there gave me the address to this place. The man told me that I should not bother to go and seek help here if I was drunk. I started to admit to myself that I had fallen as low as anyone can fall and I started to pray and ask the Lord to save me. I didn't want to die. This was new for me. I stopped drinking three days before coming here and I went through hard times with my body shaking and twisting. Now I have been sober for weeks and it seems like a miracle to me. I realize that I must find a way to create dignity to my life, so please help me to find a way. I am feeling shame for the things I have done and I realize that I must conduct myself in a way that honors the lives of Carmen and our baby. Kevin. Kevin is a poorly dressed, lanky white man in his early 30s with long, greasy hair and a ring in his right ear. He wears a black t-shirt and faded corduroy pants. His face is strained and unsmiling. His squinting gray eyes and fixed at the cup in front of him. He starts to speak with no movement of his body. I just listened to the end of what Joseph was telling us, and I understand that you are in trouble just like I am. Let me speak straight to you, Carlos, I was fighting back tears when I heard your story. So much of what you said reminds me of my own pain. You are giving me courage to tell my story. I have been living the last eight years of my life with an overwhelming feeling of guilt that has taken me away from my family and friends, and here I am, homeless, with little hope for me, because there is no room for anything but shame and guilt. I have things on my mind that will not leave me alone for a minute, no matter what distractions I seek. What I have done takes over and keeps me locked up in hopelessness. I am angry that this country that I once thought was the best place on this earth has betrayed me and deprived me of a life worth living. I was born and raised in a small town in South Carolina. Life was good, at least I thought it was. In high school, many of the kids played football, and I made the school team. The reward was that we were popular with the girls. My folks were all Southern Baptists, so any kind of drug or alcohol was strictly forbidden in my family. I went through high school with good grades, and some of my teachers wanted me to go to college. The Vietnam War was raging, and I was rooting for Nixon, and I wanted my country to win. I didn't really know where Vietnam was on the map. I was 19 and I decided to join the army so I could help save my country from the communists who threatened the United States and the free world. Better dead than red was something I heard from pretty much everybody I knew. I enlisted in the army and my family was proud that I was willing to be a warrior for the United States and Jesus and save my country from these godless people. After some training, we were packed into a huge aircraft and flew what seemed to be forever until we landed and refueled on an island called Guam and then on to Saigon. We stepped out of the aircraft right into the tropics. The heat was worse than I knew from South Carolina. The young men were dressed in full battle fatigues with backpacks and machine guns. It wasn't hard to see how stunned they all were. Nothing looked like what any of us knew from home. I remember being really scared. The officers who greeted us took control of us. They shouted at us over roaring fighter jets and helicopters. They let us know that we were going to become real men and learn how to fight these communist bastards who didn't have the guts to come out and fight. We had no idea what was going to happen next. After some rest, we were given some additional training in warfare in Vietnam. What we were told didn't comfort anybody. Special officers were teaching us to look for traps, some that decapitated people and some that impaled the victims on sharp bamboo poles left to die a horrendous death. We were instructed how to be vigilant when we moved around in the jungle. We heard about the kinds of torture that was waiting for us if we would let these bastards take us alive. Only the devil would think up stuff like that and we were beginning to listen to the bullies who talked about how we should all look forward to killing the monkeys. It was as if they were preparing for some entertainment. These bullies took some kind of informal leadership over the rest of us when the officers were not around. I don't remember anybody thinking that our napalm, cluster bombs and flamethrowers were the same thing. Truth be told, the only difference was that our stuff killed and maimed more people. Anyhow, we had nothing to do with the devastation that this weapon caused. Every day we could read statistics of how many Viet Cong and North Vietnamese soldiers had been killed. High figures were celebrated and helped us feel that we were winning the war. At the end of the first month in Vietnam, my company came under heavy enemy fire. For the first time, I saw boys dead and dying. During the whole battle, I was hiding under a bush. I was pushing my body to the ground as the bullets were making zipping sounds just above my head. I was pissing and shitting in my fatigues and I could not bring myself to fire a single shot. After this first fight the other privates in my platoon were beginning to call me names and there was nobody I could complain to. I even had to sit and eat alone. I became some kind of an untouchable person. The second time we got involved in battle things were different. I was fighting like a tiger under some kind of strange spell and I even managed to rescue a wounded soldier who was screaming for help as he was lying in the open field. I crawled out to him and pulled him back to safety even though I had been shot in the leg and had difficulty moving around. I did all this while firing rounds at the enemy who were hiding in the bushes. After that fight nobody called me names. I was awarded the Medal of Honor and I was interviewed and celebrated in many of the networks and newspapers as an American hero. I was told that my family had been celebrating back in South Carolina and the whole town had a parade for me even though I was back in Vietnam. After some time I understood that my celebrity was used to serve various self-interests. Slowly, I started to acknowledge to myself how war-crazy and murderous our presence in Vietnam was. I tried my best to swallow the whole fucking propaganda that we were fed every day, but the absurdity of it all took over and sent me into serious doubt about being there at all. My company was under the command of a captain who we called Crazy Tim. Tim was a graduate from some Ivy League school back in the U.S., Personally, I think that he tried to prove something to himself because he never avoided seeking battle and we started to think that he was going to get us all killed. Some black kids even started to talk about shooting crazy to him. Maybe he had a death wish. He didn't give a hoot about discipline in the company and he looked away when soldiers were smoking weed and opium through the barrels of the guns. There was also plenty of speed to go around. When we were camping out in the jungle, there were times when the soldiers get so hopped up on all the drugs that they started to shout and scream as if they were on some insane high school party back in the States. When that happened, I volunteered the job as a sentinel far away from these noisy affairs. I figured that I had a better chance to stay alive sitting quietly by myself in the jungle. The black and the white kids started to form separate gangs with their own rules and there were times when things became pretty scary between the groups. We came very close to racial warfare right there in the jungle. The strange thing is that nobody was left with a choice, no matter what you were thinking. I had to join the white kids. The rules were so strong in each of the camps that there was no other way other than to follow and do what the group wanted. Each group was led by a scary bully and his friends who ruled over us. Crazy Tim did not interfere with all that as long as we were fighting together when we encountered Viet Cong and when they came looking for us. I became like a dead person inside. I was afraid of dying an agonizing death and yet somehow I started to give a hoot about whether I was living or dying. I became a mental zombie at the loss of knowing right from wrong. Later I have come to understand that I had no perspectives from where to judge this absurd situation. There were times when I thought about Jesus and the Almighty, but none of them were with us in Vietnam as far as I was concerned. The chaplain approached me to talk about my faith, but I tried to stay away from him. In a way, I was embarrassed to have abandoned my faith and I was wondering what my family in parish would think of me now that I had expelled Jesus from my heart. Back home, I would be condemned to hell, it didn't matter, I was already there. Now I will tell you the story that I have never told anyone. I am nervous as hell to say out loud what I have decided to tell you right now. I know that if some Vietnam vets hear what I have to say, some of them will come after me to shut me up, but I will tell you about the memories that haunt me day and night. We had been doing a cleaning up operation in the Mekong Delta, and had received order to set up camp and wait for news from the intelligence unit where to go next. We were hiding out in the jungle, and life was miserable. It was hot and humid. The rain was pouring non-stop and we were afflicted with all kinds of skin leisure and foot fungus. Snakes, leeches and scary insects were everywhere. All our stuff was covered with mildew, no matter how we were trying to keep things dry and clean. Not far from our camp were three villages where time had stopped. People were fishing and farming and went about life as if there was no war. We went from house to house in these little villages, looking for Viet Cong collaborators, at any sign that the villagers were supporting the North Vietnamese army, which had taken over the war. To get information, we roughed up some of the village leaders who were terrified of us. In every hut, people screamed with fear when we entered, and for that reason, we despised them. We even shot their animals for fear that they would be booby-trapped. During these searches, we turned everything upside down to look for weapons, tunnels, anything that would give us reason to become really violent. We were thinking they were afraid of us because they had something to hide, and we thought about them as enemies and less than humans. Most of us were disappointed when we didn't find what we were looking for. That's how it was. Crazy Tim wanted to burn down all the villages, including men, women, and children. To him, none of them belonged to the human race. For some reason, I stopped him by using my status as an American hero. I guess he didn't want to be mentioned in some interview at the end of the war. He was clearly annoyed with me, interfering with his authority, but he didn't go ahead with his plan. Crazy Tim was a killer, always looking for ways to inflict pain and spill blood. One early morning, around four, I woke up listening to voices that sounded strange to me. Some of the boys were whispering and swearing as they told each other stories about how they had put God's fear into the people in the nearest village. They were obviously pleased with something they had done. I got up to find out what the commotion was about, and to my surprise, I found three of the white kids dressed up like American Indians. They had cut the hair to mohawks, attached feathers that were hanging down on the back of the head. They were naked except for loincloth that was held in place with a broad belt. Their faces were covered with stripes of red paint to make them look scary. Each of them had a huge knife hanging from the belt and each of them had tied scalps to the belt. The scalps were fresh and blood was running down their legs. Some scalps were women's hair and some of them were so small that they must have come from children. One of them whispered, Kevin, you motherfucker, we did it, we fucking did it. Under the cover of the night, we sneaked into the village over there and went from house to house. We woke them up to their worst nightmare. Two of us held down these sneaky little bastards and the third took the scalp, making sure that no screams were heard. We did it, we fucking took the scalps. Some of them were killed, some we let live. None of these monkeys will ever dare to threaten our lives again. We took care of it, and we had decided to do the other two villages during the next couple of nights. This is the way to pay back what these people are doing to us. This is how we should be running this war. We have some news for you, Kevin. You are coming with us tomorrow night. We want you to have some skin in this game so you can never tell anyone about this stuff, because nobody will ever understand. I was speechless and I wanted to protest. Just as I was opening my mouth, I was surrounded and one of them held his knife to my throat and promised to kill me if I was trying to get out of this situation. You either join us or we'll get you into an accident and you will never get another medal or see your family and country again. They were serious, no doubt about that, and I was desperate to get off the hook. I went to see crazy Tim and told him about what was going on and he took a long look at me and said that he didn't hear what I just told him. The next evening, these three guys took me away from the camp, cut my hair, painted my face, and had me sharpen my bayonet until it was razor sharp. Again, I tried to talk myself out of the situation and promised never to tell anybody what they were doing if they would just let me go, and all I got back was just more scary threats. I joined them that night. They made me scalp three people alive and something happened to me that will haunt me for the rest of my life. I started to take some kind of pleasure from scalping and killing. I became an animal and I kept maiming and killing these poor people and I didn't want to stop. It was like I was taken over by the devil and I became his angel of death. I don't even remember how we came back to the camp. But I remember a fire. We danced around celebrating our victory over the enemy. When I woke up in the camp the next morning, it slowly dawned on me what I had done. How could I let myself fall so far down into hell? Carlos, you came up from the hole, but I never did, and I'm still there. The devil is lurking somewhere in my soul, and he doesn't allow me to forget him. He may be back again, and there is no telling what can happen. I am so scared. I have never said that out loud before. I'm sorry that I'm crying. But is there anyone who can take pity on me and forgive me?" Just before the war was lost to the North Vietnamese, we were back on the plane to the United States. The soldiers on that plane were a sad bunch of twisted kids, many burdened by unspeakable secrets and occasional visits to hell. I returned to my town in South Carolina. Everybody wanted to shake my hand. People told me how proud they were of having their hero back in town. At the same time, people were spitting behind the returning Vietnam vets as if they were responsible for the shameful defeat of the invincible US military. I retreated into my childhood room and just sat there drinking, smoking weed and working up my rage. I tried to read some self-help books but I just could not connect to any of that stuff I was reading, the words through my disgust from myself and everything around me. One day I snapped and destroyed the room, everything in it, including the windows and the door, just because I didn't know what else to do. The few times I ventured out, I got into fights with people. People I knew who had defended the war now denied that they had ever been in favor of the war. Fucking hypocrites and cowards. I started to hate them all, including my own family. The celebration of the hero turned to scorn and people started to hate me back. My parents and the preacher got together and told me that I would find life better elsewhere. The fucking hypocrites told me that this would be for my own good, since life in town would no longer be safe for me. I stood up and told them that I was glad to leave them to rot in their stupid, narrow-minded lives, and I asked them all to go to hell. I left for New York City, hoping to disappear into the crowds. Since I came here, I've been holding on to a few temporary jobs. I met some vets, but everything ends badly. Now I am drifting from soup kitchen to soup kitchen, panhandling, and sometimes stealing to get money to eat and get high. Mostly I sleep on the streets. This is what it all came to, and I am giving up hope for a decent life. What kind of hell is waiting for me now? The one I am in torments me night and day. I can't even escape the punishment in my sleep. I am sure that other kinds of hells are waiting for me. That is the reason why I'm afraid to take my own life. Right now, I feel strangely uplifted that I got this story off my chest. Somehow, I feel good telling you and all I see right now is faces looking at me with kindness. That is a miracle, a miracle.